Morning, church. Hey, guys. <clears throat> Welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to the book of 1 Peter. We have been in a uh, kind of five-week series on the book of 1 Peter called The Foreigners. And so uh, we will be in chapter 3. So as you're uh, grabbing your Bibles, there should be uh, Bibles in the pew rack in front of you if you don't have your own. And uh, if you grab one of those NIV Bibles, we will be on page 982. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13, is where we're going to be. And we're going to take a look at just a few short verses, verses 13 through 15, as we find ourselves in uh, part 4 of our series called The Foreigners. Um, just by a, a quick way of review, uh, the, uh, the, sermon series, uh, the sermon series is essentially asking the question, how do we live Christian in an unchristian world? Uh, that is, how do we go about holding on to our faith, holding on to our beliefs, uh, living differently in spite of the pressure and sometimes persecution that we face as Christians. How do we, how do, we do this? And uh, at the very beginning of the, bu- uh, the book of 1 Peter, he calls us foreigners, foreigners in a foreign land. And I think this book is very helpful. And what we've seen so far is uh, three things about living Christian in an unchristian world. Uh, in part one, uh, we saw that we needed to long for our true home. Uh, what Peter told us was that this earth and, and this life is really not our home, uh, We're temporary foreigners. We're sojourners. We're kind of in the land, but not a part of the land. And so we need to have our our hope uh, in in an eternal home, and we need to long for that home. And then in part two, we talked about how we need to not only long for home, but we need to live differently. Part of being a foreigner, uh, just by default, is living differently. And so he's encouraged us to live differently as Christians. And then last week, we talked about a a difficult subject, and that is how do Christians relate to the government? Uh, That is is we being Christians, we, uh, we kind of have this dual citizenship. We're both citizens of heaven, but we're citizens of Illinois and of, of the United States of America. So, so how do we do that? And we talked about how we need to, to lay down uh, to a, the authority that God has established. And so that's where we've been. And where we're going is part four this morning is, is uh, the fourth thing that I think Peter really focuses on uh, when he considers the question of living Christian in an unchristian world is that we need to be prepared to lovingly respond to people uh, who have questions about the faith. We need to be prepared to lovingly respond even when facing pressure and even when, pa- when facing persecution. We need to be ready to give a, a defense or an answer uh, to some of the questions that we saw in our video and a whole host of other questions. Uh, other questions. And so how do we live as foreigners? We need to lovingly respond to unbelievers. So let's, let's pray, and then we'll jump right into our text in chapter 3 of First Peter. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you uh, for the morning. We thank you for these people who are here. Uh, we're, we're so very grateful that they have come to worship you with their lips, and, and I pray that the fruit of their lips would, would re- merely just be the overflow of the fruit of their lives. Uh, Father, that everything that we are, uh, that our, our, our jobs and our, our parenting and our schoolwork and our, our friendships and everything that we do, that it would be oriented around who you are and what you've done for us through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. May we be so utterly transformed that our lives are uh, one big worship uh, event for you. Father, thank you that we can come now and that we can sit under your word. Father, we recognize that you've given us your word. It's holy and good. It's just and and right, and it has much to teach us. And in particular, as we look at the words that have been penned so long ago, 
But they're written to a group of pe- people much like us, uh, a group of Christians who, who felt the pressure from the world, uh, a group of, of believers who were enduring persecution and hardships and job loss and even having their very lives threatened for the sake of following your son, Jesus Christ. They knew what it was like to be Christian in an unchristian world, and, and, and you wanted to, to communicate to them through Peter, and you wanted to communicate to us because, Father, we feel these pressures as well. Uh, we feel the difficulty of living in this world where we are not welcome where we are strangers, and oftentimes we are not wanted. And so help us, especially today, as we think about giving a loving response to the questions, to the objections, to the persecutions, uh, to the pressures that we face. We want to answer the world well and be prepared uh, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have through your Son. And so help us, prepare us to do this. May we lovingly respond to our neighbors, to our, co- our co-workers, to our family members, members, to everyone you bring in contact with us who are, who are not Christian, may we give such good answers that your Holy Spirit would come and move in their hearts and cause them to be born again. So we love you. We thank you. We ask for your help and for your grace. Holy Spirit, come, move among us. Teach us, instruct us, guide us. Use me. Help me to speak words that are truthful and accurate and not false. And so, and help those who are hearing me to be attentive to your glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior and God's people said, amen. As I've said before this morning, we're going to talk about how to lovingly respond. Uh, essentially what we're going to see today is four points. And so if you're, if you're taking down notes, you can jot down four bullets and you'll get the thrust of the sermon. Uh, this morning, Peter is going to give us four principles is what I'll call them. Four, four principles as to how to lovingly respond when we face the pressure of the world. How to lovingly respond when we face uh, honest questions. How to lovingly respond when we face not so honest questions. How do we respond when someone threatens us, when someone questions our faith, when someone wants us to, to, to give in our belief or or our ideology or our theology or our morality? How do we respond when we face this kind of pressure? Well, he's going to give us four principles this morning that I think are are very helpful about responding and giving an answer, lovingly responding to people who have questions. Uh, Before we do that, I've asked my wife to come up and to share just briefly um, about some experiences that she's had doing just that. So honey, if you don't mind, come on up. Uh, Coming on up, I'll give you uh, this mic here. And uh, I think it is on. Uh, we were talking uh, just yesterday, and I was sh- sh- uh, sharing with Shelly, sharing with Shelly um, about uh, the sermon and what we were talking about. And I said, hey, have you had any experience uh, doing this kind of thing? I-, I know you were quite the evangelist in college, uh, certainly more than I was, I think. And so uh, we kind of got to talking, and she was sharing with me a little bit about some of her experiences. First of all, maybe a personal experience with going through some of these questions that are often raised by the world, by unbelievers, by critics, um, yourself and, and kind of wrestling with those questions uh, to solidify your own faith and then how then that kind of prepared her to answer people down the road when you came into contact with them and they had some of the same questions that you wrestled with. And so I, I'm just going to give you the mic and ask you to talk uh, just for a little while about some of those experiences about how you lovingly responded uh, to, to people that God brought your way. Okay. Um. Well, you know, when you go off to college, it's a whole new world, and you meet all sorts of fun people. And I met this gal. Um, she's from another country. I had grown up in a country where Christianity was not the main religion. And um, it was a friend of my roommate, and we were just talking. And I'm sure my roommate and I were both Christian, and we were, you know, sharing our faith with her. And she just asked the simple question, how do you know your God's the right God? And 
it kind of just stopped me in my tracks because I thought, well, because my parents told me it was true. Like, you know, like I didn't have a good answer for her. And I thought, wow, uh, I need to think about this. And so I did. Um, my BSU director at the time. Baptist direct- Student Union. Baptist Student Union. Yep. Now Formerly Baptist, Baptist. Collegiate Ministries. Yes. Baptist at heart. Um, <laughs> He directed me to the book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, um, and I am not a philosopher, so I took me a while to get through that one, but it was really helpful. Um, I remember then continuing that summer, I went and got Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict and read that and really um, had the knowledge then to go, yeah, Christianity makes sense. Um, but there still came a point where um, I, was, I was struggling with doubt. And, um, you know, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't have faith, uh, you're in trouble. you got to have faith. And um, God really, I just, I remember I was at some retreat with the BSU, and I remember just praying, okay, I'm doubting. I, don't, I know all the right answers, but I'm still doubting. And I said, God, I just need you to hold on to me. If you're real and if this is real, I need you to hold on to me because I can't hold on to you. I need faith. And somehow, um, I, don't even, I don't even know what the turning point was, but God gave me that faith. And from that point forward, I had the knowledge and I had the faith. And um, I never doubted, never doubted God again. I never doubted that he was there, that he was real. And um, then going on into my sophomore year, I got to take a trip to France for a semester and met some people. And, of course, France is largely not Christian. Um, not many churches there, and I remember sitting in a nightclub of all places, which I did not want to be at, but my French friend drug me there and for Paris, so here I am, where else am I going to go? So here I am in this nightclub, and she uh, had brought a friend, and we were just, during all the slow songs, we were talking and could hear ourselves talk, and he was just asking me, and I remember sharing my faith with him, and I don't even know what I said, but I remember basically trying to convince him to become a Christian, you know, like, here's all the reasons why you should, and here's why it's right, and here's why it's true, and, and he looked at me, and he said, you almost convinced me to become a Christian, like, like I was a salesman, you know, and I thought, wow, that's it, like, I was presenting a good argument for him, and he had a moment where he thought, wow, this actually sounds believable, this sounds good, and i don't know that he ever made that step. I never saw him again, but at least I planted the seed, and at that point, it's up to God to give them the faith. Um, so those are kind of some of my experiences with that. Okay, so final question there for you. What would you say then uh, about the value of, of being prepared, of, of having a defense ready, of, of having some degree of knowledge? You don't have to be a PhD, um, but, but yeah. you know, what, what, what's, what's the significance, in your opinion, of, of, of that? You know, I think it's important. I think a lot of times we shy away from sharing our faith with people because we're afraid they're going to ask us a question we can't answer. And the the truth is, they may. There's a lot of questions I still probably don't have the best answer for um, that they may have. But I felt like when I did get in a conversation, I was able to articulate truth about the questions that they did have from my experience and could point them to some scriptures. And the more you know your scripture... And the more you know, for me, I needed to know a lot of the, you know, in a postmodern world, which we are in where there's no solid truth, Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict may not be nearly as important to them as some other reasoning or rationale. Say Lewis's book. Right. But for me, that was hugely important to my faith to understand 
yeah, like, it makes sense historically. We have more documents for Christianity than any other literature out there, and yet we claim those, we claim Shakespeare's work to be true. Why, why wouldn't we claim the Bible to be true to those kind of things um, that he brought up that really solidified my faith? So, yeah, I mean, it, every, the most, the more we know, the more confident we are to share. Great. So. Babe, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. If you guys would give her a round of applause for coming up. Thank you so much. I didn't grill you too bad. We'll do that when we get home, so. <laughs> okay, thanks, babe. So that's essentially what, what we're going to be talking about this morning, is how do we, how do, we do this? How do we uh, become prepared to, to lovingly respond to the opposition and the questions that we face? Uh, so four principles. Let's turn then to our uh, text in First Peter. I just want to read through it. It's, it's uh, three, three verses. Just want to kind of lay it out there. And then we'll find our, our four principles about lovingly responding. Uh, so let's start in uh, chapter 3. And we'll start in verse 13. Uh, Peter says this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Then he quotes, "Do, Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And that is God's word. So let's jump in then in verse 13. Let's take a look at our first principle. What's the first thing that Peter says about lovingly responding? This is the first thing we see, and it's found in verse 13. Jot this down. First of all, doing good normally emphasis on normally, doing good normally results in peace. And, and so he says in verse 13, he, he raises a question, and, and the question really stems from what he has said earlier. We'll take a look at that in a minute. But he, he asks a question, who is going to harm you, Christian? Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And so the question that Peter uh, first raises is he raises the question of, of what is the norm? That's how do normally people who are unbelievers respond to Christians when we we do them good, when we do them well, uh, when we treat them rightly, how do they normally respond? And he asks a, a question, but it's inferred. The answer is, well, they will treat us rightly. Who's going to harm you, Christian? Like, normally they won't harm you if you're eager to do them good. Now, this good that he says in verse 13, I think is really defined in verses 8 through 12. And, and so let's, let's read that together. It's not on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, read verses 8 through 12, because he defines what doing good to the unbeliever looks like. And he essentially says, if you, if you don't return evil for evil, and if you pr- pursue having a, a peaceful relationship with, with the non-Christian, then normally they're going to do good for you. Verse 8, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. I think specifically referring to relationships uh, within the Christian context, within the church. But then I think in verse 9, he kind of moves outside of the church. He says, don't repay evil with evil, right? Or insult with insult. So he says, hey, listen, if you, if you do this with the, with the non-Christian, if they attack you, if they question you, if they seek to harm you, but, but instead of doing evil for evil or insult for insult, on the contrary, if you repay evil with a blessing, either a verbal 
blessing or just some kind of tangible blessing, if you give them good in place of evil, then this is what's going to happen. Because this is what you were called to, he says, so that you may inherit a blessing. And then he quotes some Old Testament uh, scriptures for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. There's the word. And do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. That is peace among unbelievers. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so after uh, uh, quoting these Old Testament texts, Peter essentially says, listen, if you don't return evil for evil, if you seek to have peaceful relationships with people who are not of the faith, then who's going to harm you? Who's going to harm you, verse 13, if, if you're eager to, to, to do good? And so the simple principle that we see is that when we do good to unbelievers, it normally results in peace. Uh, some people have said, and I think it's a, it's a good illustration, that uh, being a Christian uh, is kind of like uh, taking a driver's ed class. And so living the Christian life is like taking driver's ed class. It doesn't keep you from every accident, but it does keep you from a lot of accidents, right? That's what driver's ed classes do. It's intended uh, not to make you uh, foolproof, accident-proof, but to keep you from uh, unnecessary and unintended accidents. Well, that's kind of what Peter is saying. He says, listen, if you live the Christian life and if you treat the unbeliever with, with, with peaceful relationships and you don't harm them when they harm you, well, normally it's going to keep you from not every accident— but from quite a few accidents. And so he, this is the kind of, the, this is the normal principle, right? So doing good usually keeps us from pressure, from persecution. Usually we will have healthy relationships with unbelievers. And so uh, likely your coworkers won't just treat you poorly. They won't normally just have it out for you if, if you're a good coworker with them. If you do them right, normally they'll do you right. Your neighbor probably won't ridicule you, at least not to your face, for your, for your faith if, if you do them right. If you're a helpful neighbor, if you mow their yard, if you treat them well, they generally will treat you well. Your family members, generally speaking, won't ostracize you for your faith just, uh, just because. If you're a good aunt, if you're a good brother, if you're a good cousin or son, you have healthy family relationships, well, Peter says normally, normally, then they will treat you good as well. And so this is the norm, right? And so this is something that we should hang on to as Christians as we relate to people who are unbelievers, especially when they insult us, especially when they do us wrong. If we don't return that wrong and we seek to have peaceful relations, normally it's going to go well for us. So he sets the norm in the first principle, but then there's the, well, this is normally true, but then sometimes it's not. And that leads us to principle number two, and that's this. Sometimes we suffer for doing good as Christians. Sometimes it's not the norm. Sometimes there is an exception, and even when we treat people right as Christians, we're going to suffer. We're going to suffer for it simply because we're Christians. And that's what he says in verse 14. Let's, let's read it again together. He says, but, notice the contrast there, but, but even if you should suffer for what is right. So, so notice the contrast. You normally, you won't, 
but there are some circumstances where you will, is what Peter says. And, and, and we need to hear that as Christians, because I think oftentimes we have this attitude and perspective that if we just obey God, and if we just obey his word, and if we hold fast to, to, to faith and to the teachings of the scriptures and to doctrine, well, then nobody's going to, you know, not like us. We're just going to be liked and loved by everyone, and we won't have any, anybody coming against us. And, well, normally that's true, but Peter says, well, it's not always true. Sometimes... Sometimes we will suffer for doing what is right. Sometimes we will suffer just because we are Christians. And so there may be people who will criticize your kids. They may speak poorly about your kids because you've taught them Christian standards and you've taught them Christian beliefs and they don't like it. And so the fact is, is that somebody, sometimes, they just may not treat your kids very rightly because they are Christians. Sometimes people will spread rumors about us because they just don't like us. They don't like what we believe. They don't like what we hold to. They don't like what we say. They don't like the things uh, that we do. And oftentimes they uh, do the things that we don't, therefore they don't like us. That is, they see the way that we live and, well, they don't, we don't get in trouble like they do, and so they don't like us. Um, you know, I, I've, I've not undergone very much suffering very much persecution as a Christian. Uh, most of us probably haven't to some degree, but I do remember in high school, when I was 15 years old, I became a Christian. And I didn't really start living it until I was 18 years old. It didn't really take, take root. It didn't really show up in my life. But I do remember my senior year of high school, uh, I, there weren't tr- tremendous changes, but there were some changes that, that I think were visible. And there were a, a group of young men in my class that I previously had a decent relationship with. I mean, we weren't good buds. We didn't hang out on Saturday nights or anything. But uh, they were cordial to me. They weren't hostile to me. But I remember very specifically them becoming very hostile my senior year when I was 18 years old because I think I became a little more vocal. I, and I changed some of my behaviors. And so they would look at me and they would say, man, you're just a kiss-up, right? Your teacher's pet. And I'm like, I obey the teacher, and I don't cuss her out, okay? So, yeah, maybe so. And they would say, well, this and that and the other, and and they were persecuting me, to to use this soft term, uh, just because I was changing, and they didn't like it. Sometimes that does happen. But notice, notice what he says. If that's the case, if you're feeling this kind of pressure for being a Christian, what does he say? Man, you're really in a bad spot. Does he say, but even if you should suffer for for what is right, you are really cursed of God? No, he doesn't say that. What does he say about suffering for the sake of Christ? He says, you are what, church? Blessed. You're blessed. Now, wait just a minute here, okay? As Christians, we think, wait a minute. Somebody does something to us, they harm us, they talk about us, they criticize us, they question us, and, and we're, we're kind of getting it because we're Christians and we're, what, God? We're blessed? That's the way Christianity works. He, he explains this later in, in chapter 4, so I, I want to save some of my ammunition for my final sermon, okay? But if you keep reading in First Peter, he's going to give at least three specific reasons why suffering and, and getting the fuzzy end of the lollipop, as Herb likes to say. Thanks for that saying. Uh, when we get that, when we get that as Christians, there are three reasons at least why we're blessed homework, read chapter 4, find them, and then I'll tell you what they are. But, but quite simply, he says, you're blessed because you're obeying God rather than obeying man. You're blessed because when people come against you and you feel this pressure, 
Listen, you're a Christian, and you're doing what's right, and God is well-pleased with what you're doing, and so you can consider yourself blessed. There are other reasons, and we'll get there next week. But speaking of application, so when your kids do get that, when they get the flack for standing for uh, some kind of social issue, when they get the flack that's just not popular at school, consider your kids to be blessed. You know, when they go home and the college professor openly mocks their faith, openly mocks their Christianity, whether it be their belief in in a God at all or maybe a a creation or or whatever, and this happens a lot. If you send your kids to state school, if you send your kids to some Christian schools, I promise that they they will feel this from their professors. I remember going into a a secular class at Texas A&M, and I think it was a science class, although I'm not sure, and I remember the professor almost the first day at lecture pretty much called Christians idiots and dummies and and, and, and just kind of went on and on and on. That's life. That's part of being a Christian. But the wonderful thing is, is that when your kids sit there and, and the professor mocks them, they are blessed according to the words of Christ. Teenagers, when you go to school and you have to make tough decisions, when you have to make decisions like, do you experiment with drugs or not? Do you experiment with alcohol or not? Do you go to the parties or not? Do you engage in, in sex outside of marriage or not? And you make these very difficult decisions. You make that choice, and then some of your friends make a very different choice. I, I can almost promise you that you're going to get some flack from that your friends will tease you. They'll make fun of you. Now, maybe they, they won't, but oftentimes you'll, you'll feel that pressure. Teenagers, consider this. When you feel that pressure and you make the right choice, the scripture says you are blessed because you are obeying God and there are other reasons as well. So we've seen a couple things. Peter says, listen, this is the norm. You treat unbelievers right, they're gonna treat you right normally, but there are times when that just doesn't happen. And when you suffer for being a Christian, consider yourself blessed, is what he says. And that leads us then to the last part of verse 14. And and on into 15, he says, principle number three. He says, don't soften under suffering. That is, don't give in. Don't give in on your theology. Don't give in on your morality. Don't give in on your beliefs. That's oftentimes what happens when we as Christians, when we do suffer for doing good, when we suffer for, for, for being Christians, what we often do, and I know I've done it, numerous times, is I give in. I go soft. I, I, I digress. I don't, I don't, I give in on my morals and I, and I go along and sin, or I just refuse to give an explanation for what it is uh, that I believe. And so what Peter says is, is significant. Notice what he says at the tail end of verse 14. He says, do not fear. Church, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when this happens. Don't fear their threats and do not be frightened. That is, don't fear when they verbally threaten you. Don't be afraid when they intellectually threaten you. Don't be afraid when there's relational uh, uh, threatening. That is, when they threaten to to break off uh, any kind of relationship. He says, don't be afraid for their threats against you, for your morals or for your beliefs. Don't be frightened, okay? Don't soften. So what's the contrary? What's the contrast? Well, we shouldn't be afraid of, of human beings and what they should do to us, but... Verse 15 gives us the opposite. This is the alternative, and this is the alternative we should go with. But in your hearts, revere Christ. Some translations say, set him apart. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
So you put the two phrases together, and what is he saying? He's essentially saying, listen, in that moment when your beliefs are threatened, when your theology is threatened, when your lifestyle is threatened, you can choose to be afraid of the consequences of holding that, and you can go soft, and you can give in, and you can uh, give up, or, or you can set aside Christ in your heart as first place. That is, you can fear what he thinks above what they think. You can fear what, what the consequences of disobeying Christ is as opposed to the, the consequences of disobeying society or your friends or your peer group or your coworkers or your boss, right? He says, listen, you can fear them or, or, or you could fear God. You have to choose. He says, fear Jesus more than them. Continue to obey him and do not give in. One commentator states it really well, so I'd just like to read his quote. This is what he says, and and this is exactly what Peter is meaning, I think. He says, the pressure that is for the Christian, the pressure is to renounce or revise the message to make it less offensive. Hear that, church. We can renounce, that is, give up on Christ altogether, most of us probably don't go that route. Most of us probably go the second. He says you can, the pressure is to renounce or revise the message to make it less offensive. That is, we can give up on our theology and our beliefs because we know that people can swallow it more easily. He continues to say our response, our response to this pressure is a reflection of who we most fear. This is so significant. For those of you who struggle like myself with people not liking me, This is huge. Our response to this pressure is a reflection of who we most fear. We either fear God or men. If we fear men, we will be shaken and silenced by their opposition. However, if we fear God, we will faithfully persist in proclaiming the gospel. He concludes by saying this, persecution forces us to settle the question of who we fear most, God or men. And so church, Christian, who is it that you fear most? Who is it whose opinion matters most to you? And so if we soften our view on uh, social issues, it may create, create tension in our family, but he says, don't fear their threats. If we go soft on maybe our, our longtime friend who was once a Christian, but they've now said, listen, this is a bunch of bogus. This is crazy. You're, you, uh, you, know, you don't need to believe that. And they've gone away from the faith. Instead of going soft and saying, yeah, you're right. It's all the same. You know, Muslims and Buddhists and, and Hindus and you know, atheists. It's, it's all really the same. Instead of then uh, going soft like that, Peter says, listen, don't fear their threats. Set, <laughs> set Christ apart in your heart Listen, teenagers, the, f- the, the issue is going to be that you will give on your morals when, when your friends threaten you. It will be so easy to go their way. It will be so easy to go their way. But you have to ask yourself this very significant question. And I wish I would have asked myself this when I was 15, after I be- became a Christian. Who do I really fear the most? Whose opinion really matters the most? Whose, what, what, whose consequences of being disobedient do I really matter the most? Is it God's or is it my peer group's? Oftentimes I chose my peer groups. Young people, don't choose, your, don't choose your friends. So he says the third principle is don't soften under suffering. And then he wraps up in verse 15, the tail end. He's, he said, listen, normally if you treat people right, they'll treat you right. But sometimes they won't, and you're going to suffer for being a Christian. And when you do suffer for being a Christian, don't soften, is what he says. But this is what you should do. 
He said you should lovingly respond. And he says this in verse 15 and on into to verse 16. You should lovingly respond. So let's, let's read what he has here at the tail end of verse 15. He says always, not sometimes, but always, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so, first of all, the first thing he wants us to see is that there is a responsibility as a Christian to lovingly respond when we feel this pressure, when, when people threaten the theology, when people threaten the beliefs, when people threaten the morals, when they threaten uh, our, our, our values. He says, listen, what you shouldn't do is go soft and give in, but instead you need to respond to them. The, the word in the Greek for answer is the word where we get our modern-day word, apologetics. Um, I would read it in Greek, but it's been so many years that I probably mess it up. <laughs> so just trust me here. It's the word where we get apologetics. And, and, and in the Greek, it essentially refers to a defendant making a case before a judge. And so he uses this image and he says, listen, uh, there's going to be pressure. There's going to be questions. Don't soften. Give them an answer as if they're your judge and you're a defendant and you're pleading your case before them, making a good argument for them to believe what it is that you're saying. Uh, the old commentator uh, Barclay uh, says it this way. He says, in a hostile and suspicious world, church, is our world hostile and is it suspicious of us? You better believe it. In a hostile and suspicious world, it is inevitable that the Christian would be called upon to defend both the faith that we hold and the hope by which we live. So we defend the faith that we hold and the faith and the hope by which we live. And so he says, listen, there is an answer. You can defend yourself, so to speak. Not, of course, physically. Not when somebody comes, uh, you know, comes at you and he's like, man, I don't think that your God exists. Whap! No, that's not what, <laughs> that's not the kind of defense he's talking about. You give reasons for your hope, right? You, you give solid evidence like Shelley was talking about. So there is a place for us to respond, okay? As Christians, there is a place for us to respond. But how do we do it? And this is where I think oftentimes Christians have gone wrong. How do we do that? I mean, with, with what kind of mannerisms, what kind of tones of voice do we use when we're engaging someone who is hostile to our faith? Maybe they're even openly persecuting us. How, how do we respond? What's the manner? Well, he says so in verse 15. At the tail end of 15 and, and getting into 16, he says, but, but do this with what, church? What's the word? Gentleness. But do this with gentleness, not harshness. Do this with gentleness and what? And respect. Gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So there are the three elements. We do it gently, we do it respectfully, and we have a clear conscience. That is, we're not just telling them something that we don't at all live or believe or buy, right? And this is, this is huge. Because oftentimes, I think Christians, rightly so, have gotten the bad rap that we defend our faith and we articulate truths uh, in the social arena. But, you know, to be honest, sometimes we're just not all that gentle about it. And sometimes we're not all that respectful about it. And sometimes, uh, oftentimes, we don't have a clear conscience on the matter. And so what, what he's saying is that, listen, we don't just go out for a fight, right? We don't just go out to pick an argument. The goal is not to win the argument. We're supposed to patiently listen to what they have to say. We're supposed to patiently listen to, to their concerns, to, to their logic, to their reasoning. We need to patiently uh, uh, listen to that. We don't need to act like they're idiots and we're know-it-alls and they're stupid for believing what they believe. Our goal is to not make them look foolish, but it's to help them see the truth. Our goal is to not win the argument. It's to help them understand what God is saying through his word. 
So we treat them with respect, even when they don't treat us with respect. I don't know if you've ever been in a dialogue with a person who, who, who is uh, opposite uh, faith of you, who was quite hostile, maybe on a social issue, and it can be very tense and it can be very heated. And, and oftentimes we may get disrespected. We respect them. You know, I, I, I think of when I was in college, uh, there was a guy, and uh, I guess somewhat like the Rob Bell video bullhorn guy, um, I don't know if you've seen that or not, uh, but there was a guy who was kind of like that. He would come to campus maybe once a semester, and kind of your typical guy, who, he would stand up in, in you know, very public place in the center of campus, stand up, I don't know if he had a bullhorn or not, I don't know, but he would just talk, and he would, he would speak some things that were true, and, and he would articulate generally the gospel, which was true, but he was incredibly offensive. I mean, there were like battles in the center of campus, right? Because this guy was trying to defend the faith, but he was doing it disrespectfully. He was doing it uh, not at all with, with gentleness, and literally there were shouting arguments back and forth as you'd walk to class, and I remember as a Christian thinking, man, you have some of the right answers, but you're, you're harming us more than you're doing good, because they don't think that you love love them, and they don't think that you care about them. You just want to win an argument, and so I didn't like that guy. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for open-air evangelism. It can be done well and rightly, but this guy didn't do it well, and that's generally the, the, that's how the unbelieving world sees us, and so Christians, as we go about responding, let's lovingly respond, okay? Let's respond with gentleness and with respect and with a clear conscience. Uh, what I'd like to do as we close here is just to give you a, a few, uh, a few. Uh, I want to say bullets for your ammunition, but seeing as how I just said we should t- treat people rightly, that's not the image I'm going to use. We should, well, let me give you some information to stuff in your head so that it can help you lovingly respond to un- unbelievers. Uh, as Shelley said, part of it is, is we just need to be prepared to give answers. Um, so I have a whole host of books here. Uh, the first one is, uh, thank you for Herb, it's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Churick. I've not read it personally. Herb says it's the best on the market. And so here it is. It looks like that. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Ask Herb about it because he's read it and I hasn't. I have not. Uh, there are several others. The, uh, the Bible Answer Book by Hank Hanegraaff. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Uh, has simple short answers to some, some difficult questions. Uh, just other useful uh, books. Philip Yancey, Where is God When It Hurts? Oftentimes, one of the biggest things against the Christian faith is the whole idea of, well, why can't you know, God in suffering and all of that stuff? That's an excellent book. Uh, a, a new resource, somewhat in line with C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Maybe somewhere down the road, if Bud and Abby are willing, we'll, we'll do that. Um, but uh, Mere Christianity is, is simply uh, an argument for the Christian faith outside of not starting with the Bible, essentially. And, and that's kind of what Timothy Keller does. They call The Reason for God, this is a DVD and a small book, uh, The Reason for God, uh, The New Mere Christianity. Uh, it's essentially the same kind of argument, but for a modern reader. And so this is something that you might want to get your hands on. Uh, I've got several other ones, The Case for Christ, Shelley mentioned, uh, The Evolution of a Creationist on uh, Creation and Evolution. Uh, there are, are tons of other resources, but I, I just want to let you know that there are things out there that aren't overwhelming that you can begin to be ready to, to give an answer. And so uh, as we wrap up, I, I want to close with a poem, a very short, short poem uh, by the author's name is Fitzhugh. She says this, When people wonder about our faith, what answer will we give? We'll tell of Jesus who bore our sins and shows us how to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very helpful portion of text. 
Father, we all, uh, to some degree, feel pressure uh, from this world and from those who are outside of the faith. Um, we feel the pressure because they sometimes uh, treat us disrespectfully. They sometimes uh, disagree, and oftentimes they will try to even make our lives pretty miserable because we're Christians. And Father, we, when we feel this pressure, whether it be on the, uh, on the national media or even as close as a brother or sister or family member, um, when we feel this, we are tempted to consider ourselves um, out of place. We are tempted to consider that we're doing something wrong, and we are considered to be discouraged. Uh, Father, help remind us that we serve a Savior who was rejected by men, who was scorned and beaten and bruised and bloodied and died because of who he was and what he said. Father, persecution and feeling pressure for our faith is not at all antithetical to being a Christian. In fact, your word says if we want to be faithful Christians that we will endure suffering and persecution from this world. Father, we are foreigners. We don't speak their tongue, we don't look like them, and we don't act like them. And so help us to be okay with that. And help us to know, dear Father, that when we suffer for being Christians, we're blessed. Father, we are blessed to be in such a spot as our Savior was. And so help us to so identify with him. And as Paul said, he wanted, he wanted to know him in the fellowship, even, even in the fellowship of his sufferings. And so help us, Jesus, to want to know you in such an intimate way so that when we suffer as you suffer, we know you all the more. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to read our closing benediction and then we'll be done. And so let's stand for our doxology. Jude says this, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And God's people said, Amen. See you next week.